0: Good morning. Would you remain standing with me just for a minute and we'll give attention to our passage today as we continue in our study of the book of James, and we're finishing chapter one today, and our, our passage specifically is James 1 verses 22 through 27. So allow me to read that to you now. James 1: 22 through27. This is God's word to you today. But don't just listen to God's word. you must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and you don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Verse 26. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you. So as you're turning to the passage, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to open to James chapter one. Again, we're gonna be right at the end of the chapter, verses 22 through 27. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn them open or turn it on your phone to James chapter one. And while you're getting there, Let me just sort of spin us back up into our series, our study on the book of James uh, by giving a quick little recap. The first thing I want to say, and for some of you this will be a reminder and for some of you uh, who are just joining us, just so you understand a little bit of what's happening in the book, James is the Proverbs of the New Testament, right? So Proverbs is a book of the Hebrew Testament that was written by Solomon, supposedly the wisest person in the world, and he collects a a writing of wisdom on how you should live out your faith and your devotion to God. And James is sort of the counterpart in the New Testament. It's the, the Proverbs of the New Testament for how you should live. And remember, there's three categories of scriptures. You know, 66 books in the Bible. There's three different categories of books. There are foundational books in the scriptures. There's historical books and instructional books. And this is really important in our study of James Because in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, there's four foundational books. Do you guys remember what they are? They're known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament are the foundational books. They're the, the what we believe. They're a selected biography, if you will, of the life and the ministry of Jesus. So we get to know who Jesus is and more importantly, what Jesus accomplished for us in the gospels. And it becomes the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. So if you've never read a book of the Bible before, or you've never studied the scriptures before, pick one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and begin reading through it because you're gonna learn about Jesus because it's a curated, selected biography for us from the Holy Spirit giving us insight into who Jesus is and more importantly what he's done for us and it lays our foundation. There's one historical book in the New Testament. Does anyone remember what it is? The book of Acts which was written by Luke. The gospel of Luke and Acts were written as One, Acts being the early history of the church in the first century. So Luke collects the history of the church and how it started and how it develops. And it goes from Jerusalem, this little group of people, 120 people in Jerusalem, and explodes all over the known world. And it ends in the book of Acts and Acts 28 in Rome, the very ends of earth itself. So one historical book, four foundational books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One historical book, Acts, and then 22 instructional books. Okay, so James is an instructional book. And why is this important? Because the chief aim and purpose of the book of James is to instruct us about how to live out our faith. The chief aim is not to lay the foundation for what the gospel is, although the gospel is mentioned in James, of course. But the purpose of the book of James, if you're just joining us for the first time, is to instruct us about how to live out our foundation and what we believe in a real time and place in history and making a real difference in our lives. So James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's wisdom for living out our faith. It's a how-to book, if you will, right? Secondly, something to know just as we spin ourselves back up into the book is that James is the younger brother of Jesus. And this is a huge context clue for for how James writes the book, for his life, what goes on. Can you imagine growing up in that house, right? Mary and Joseph are your mom and dad and Jesus is at your kitchen table every night. Right? For those of you who have siblings and you're like, I think mom and dad love my sibling more than they love me. I mean, can you imagine that table? Jesus is sitting at your table and that whole dynamic. And in fact, that plays itself out a little bit because we learn in the scriptures that James and his siblings there's four brothers, two sisters, there may have been more. So there's at least six siblings that grow up in the household with Jesus, which, by the way, isn't it awesome that God sent his son into a real family just like ours? And a carpenter's family, right, who, who worked and grew and learned just like us as, as a part of the family system with all kinds of dysfunctions and brokenness just like our families. And, and Jesus' siblings, namely James, who was the oldest among his siblings, they didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God, right? And in fact, we learn in the scriptures that James was trying to get Jesus to come back home. He was the spokesperson for his family because Jesus was the oldest. But then after Jesus came James and he went to Jesus and said, you gotta come back home, you're acting crazy. They even wanted to get him arrested, maybe even something worse that they wanted to have happen uh, to Jesus. So James was a critic, he was a cynic of his brother. And I think one of the greatest apologetics in Christianity, the word apologetic means defense, One of the greatest defenses of our faith and the validity of what we believe about Jesus is that James went on to write a book of the New Testament to lead a New Testament church and was a passionate follower of his big brother, Jesus. So what changed? What took him from being a critic, maybe even worse, antagonistic towards his brother, Jesus, to being a passionate follower of Jesus? What changed? We, Yeah, what we celebrated last week. Easter, the resurrection changed everything. You know, last week we talked about the resurrection is the single most important event in human history. But more importantly even, it's the single most important and critical event in your history, in your story. And we see that for our brother James here. The resurrected Jesus changes everything. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus appeared to his brother Jesus. Can you imagine that meeting? And uh, James's life was transformed. He was a transformed person because he believed in the Messiah, his brother, Jesus. But moreover, he went on to be a leader in the church, specifically in the church in Jerusalem, a group of people who grew up in a Jewish culture who were uh, followers of Judaism, who converted to the Messiah Jesus because they believed that he was the promised one and they began to follow him and they were people of the way. Christians were known as people of the way during that time and they experienced great persecution. And it was through James' transformation as a follower of Jesus, but also as a leader of the church, that he was able to lead people through this great persecution. And the persecution came because of politics. Not that we can relate to any of that today, right? Politics stirred up all kinds of division, not only within the church, but there were two great external forces to the people of the way, the, the church that was beginning to grow in Jerusalem, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, right, who were at odds with one another. But you know the old saying, the, 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 the uh, friend of my enemy is my friend or enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So what the Jews and the Romans could agree on, even though they were enemies, is that we have a common enemy and so now we're friends, And our common enemy is this church, the people of the way who were disrupting our way of life and the story of our world. And so the church was greatly persecuted and they were evicted from Palestine. They lost their businesses, their their homes, their ability to relate uh, to people in the, the land that meant so much to them, the promised land, they were evicted. And James is pastoring this group of people. And so he writes the letter that we're studying to a group of people, a diaspora that's been kicked out of their homeland and is starting new, is facing all kinds of uncertainty in their life, all kinds of disruption in their life, and certainly all kinds of confusion in their faith. Let let me put it this way, how does a real Jesus, people that have found a real Jesus, right, how does a real Jesus become real to me in my real problems, How can a real Jesus make a real difference in my real brokenness, in my real disappointment, in my real confusion? This is what the people were going through that James wrote to. And maybe just maybe you're going through it too. Maybe you're experiencing a crisis or a disruption, something new in your life. You're starting a new job. You're just moved uh, to this city. You're getting ready to move from here. Something is going on in your life and you're asking yourself the question, which is the question that the audience that James wrote to must have been asking, how am I gonna get through what I'm going through? How am I gonna get through this? This change, this disruption, this crisis of my faith, how how does my real faith in a real Jesus make a real difference in my real problems? And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you would say, yeah, I'm kind of wondering the same thing in my life. How am I going to get through what I'm going through right now? This heaviness, this disappointment, this, this new thing, this disruption to my world, will join the club for James's audience, the church in Jerusalem that's been scattered all around. And James, as a pastor, as a transformed person, writes this letter about how to get through what you're going through, how to take a real faith in a real Jesus and apply it in a real, broken world and here's where he starts today at the end of chapter one about how to get through what you're going through how to how to take your faith and make it personal and real in your life it's actually a principle that many of you learned early on in your life maybe even in kindergarten when you first got into a group of people or a a classroom James says if you want to make your faith real if you want to know how to get through what you're going through with Jesus you got to listen more than you speak And if we pick it up, actually, even in verse 19, if you're looking at chapter one, James says, understand this. So when he says that, we should all lean in. How many of you don't need to raise your hand or looking for understanding? You're trying to understand what's going on in your life. You're trying to understand what your next step is. You're trying to understand what to do next, what to say next, what to understand next. James says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you should be quick to listen. Listen. Now, we get that reversed in our culture, right, in many of our lives. We're quick to speak and we're slow to listen. But James says, you want to you know how to get through what you're going through? You should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And then he adds to it, look at verse 19, slow to become angry. There's this angry form of speech and he begins to play that out. And then he gets down to our passage and he says, and not only that, but if you just listen to God's word and you don't put it into practice, right? If I take the foundations of what we believe, right? We talked about foundational scriptures and I never put them into practice. I don't instruct myself in my heart, my life with my words and my actions. If it never takes root, then I'm fooling myself, James says. I'm, I'm kidding myself that this really means something to me. James says, you know, you should speak a lot less, maybe twice less than you listen. I mean, we can physically know that. How many of you learned that? You have two ears and one mouth, right? But how oftentimes do we lead with words instead of with curiosity? And not only that. We hear words, namely words from God, instructions from God, maybe a sermon or a podcast or we we read the scriptures ourselves, or we hear someone else say something from God's word and we hear it and we never put it or apply it into our lives or to a practice. It never changes us. This must have been so foreign for James's audience, why? It's a primarily Jewish audience. They grew up learning the Shema. What is the Shema? The Shema was this prayer that was recited at least three times a day by faithful Jews. It was talked about at their dinner table. It was talked about on their way, on the road. They learned the Shema. What does the word Shema mean in the Hebrew? It means to listen, but not only that, it means to obey. So it's this great word because the understanding is if you really listen to something, you're gonna put it into practice. It's gonna change the way you speak, it's gonna change the way you live if you actually heard it. And so James is connecting those dots and saying, guys, remember when you hear something, you can't just listen to it, you've gotta put it into practice, you gotta do it. And that's why you should be slow to speak and quick to listen and quick or slow to become angry. James says, consider, right? Consider what other people are saying. Consider what God is saying first before you begin to speak your words. And then begin to put it into practice. The Shema, again, was this prayer, this understanding that the Lord was one. He was one. And the word itself, again, means to not only process and hear something, but to put it into practice. So James is reminding his audience that if you truly hear God's word, then you're going to put it in practice to action you're going to put it into practice I love what Walt Whitman says maybe you're familiar with this quote when it comes to listening and doing and how we enter into relationships and situations he says be curious not judgmental which seems so basic right and there's so many biblical principles about that but many of us enter into relationships and situations in our life whatever might be facing you at work tomorrow with a sense of judgment which leads to words whether the words you're speaking to yourself or to someone else they actually escape your mouth and become words audibly to other people and a lot of times the words that come out of our heart right are coming from a place of judgment so when i enter into a situation or to a relationship first with curiosity i'm asking a question and i'm listening instead of speaking something And this is just really great relational understanding from God's word that compassion moves me to a place of grace, but anger oftentimes moves me to a place of judgment. And so when James says, don't be angry, be quick to listen and slow to speak, I think that's what he's talking about, that I navigate relationships first with a a desire to understand someone's story. But how often do we enter into a relationship or situation with something to say, James says, I know this is a hard word, guys, but this is what he says. He says, not being able to control our words is a sign that we're not actually following Jesus. Particularly in that area of our lives. If we're not able to control our tongue, then it, doesn't, it means that God's not really in control of our hearts. Because as you've heard me say, what, what's down in the well of your heart comes up in the bucket of your words. So our words, particularly the pattern of our words, show what's in our heart. And James says, you're fooling yourself, right? Look at the scripture. He says it twice. You're fooling yourself if you think that the way you listen and the way you act and the way you particularly you speak and are quick to become angry doesn't show something that's in your heart. It's like someone who is in a driver's seat of a car, but their hands aren't on the, the wheel, the steering wheel, and they say, I'm in control of the car, because I'm in the driver's seat, but your hands aren't on the wheel. And James says, if you can't control your words, it's like saying I'm in complete control of this car, but your hands aren't on the wheel. You have no control over what's coming out of your mouth. All right, let me say it this way, words build worlds. Words build words. And I can back that up biblically, right? In the beginning was the word capital W, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. Nothing in the world has been created without the word. And through the word, everything was created. That's what John one says. In other words, the word, Jesus himself spoke into existence, the world that we live in. And in a lowercase w your words begin to build your world. So you look at the world of your family, the world of your business, the world of your friendships, the world of everything that you move and navigate through is built by your words, the words that that you speak, but more importantly, the words that are in your heart, the true story that you're believing about God and other people and yourself. So I guess my question to all of us would be, what does your world look like? And how might it be connected to the words that you're speaking in anger or judgment. The words that you hear from God, according to James, but you refuse to put into practice and obey. Again, it's interesting to me that James links here careless words with a careless devotion to God. And he begins to use a word here in verses 26 and 27 in our passage that we're very familiar with and certainly our culture and our world is very familiar with, in fact, Most people in your circles would consider you to be this um, word that's being described or being used by, by James here. The word is religious, religion. Now, I just want to do a little unscientific poll here. For people in your world, in your circles, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers who would consider themselves irreligious or non-religious, which by the way, the percentage of people in our own city who would say, I'm not religious, I'm non-religious or irreligious is higher now for the first time in history than people who say they are. And that stat continues to grow and grow and grow. So a non-religious group of people or an irreligious group of people, what would they say about you and religious people? Would they have a, let me ask it this way. Would people who are non or irreligious by their own admission, have a favorable, like a positive view towards religious people or religion or a negative view towards religious people or religion? The first service said negative. And I think by and large, that's the answer. There's a, there's a, there's a negative connotation towards religiosity or religious people. And, and why do you think that is? Well, there's probably a myriad of reasons for that, right? In people's story and understanding their story, speaking of being curious about how they got to that conclusion. But I'm going to guarantee that most of the people in your world that would have a negative connotation towards religiosity or religious person, somewhere in their story, if you listen and you're curious, they heard words or they saw words posted about them or people that they think they are that were negative or judgmental in their words, right? I know there's nuance to all of this, but in their story somewhere, I guarantee you they would say, I had a bad experience where someone said something to me or was judgmental towards me or wasn't curious about me, never listened to me, never really understood me. And I just, I, I turned myself off from religion there. I just made a conclusion and their own judgment that everyone who's religious is that way. And, and here would be my challenge, right? For those of us who are Christ followers, what if the people in our circles who would say, I'm, I'm non-religious, I'm irreligious, what if they began through our lives to say, you know, I don't consider myself to be a religious person, but this religious coworker that I have, which is an interesting label, this religious neighbor that I have, right, but believe me, you have it, um, this person that I know that's really religious, they're the best listener I know. I mean, no one listened to me like they listened to me. They asked me great questions about my story. They were so curious about my family, my history, my understanding of Christianity, my understanding of Jesus. They were so curious that I never once felt like they were judging me for what I was saying. They just listened to me. So many people and so many of us, by the way, have never had someone that actually listened to us. Because most people enter into a conversation or a relationship With a formed judgment and lots of words and it's hard to listen when we're speaking i know the irony of preachers saying this but it's hard to listen when we're speaking right it just is it just is physically it is and how many people in our circles that have turned themselves off from religion or specifically christianity following jesus because man, I just felt like somebody spoke a word of judgment or they just, all they wanted to do was convert me and talk to me about all the things that they believe. You know, like Tim Keller says, for most of us, evangelism or telling people about Jesus is this, I'm right and you're wrong. And I'd love to tell you more about it. (laughs) And you know, it is funny, but it kind of stings too, because a lot of people in our circles, that has been their experience, right or wrong, fair or unfair. Their summation is that, you know, I just feel like everybody who's religious is, they think they're right and I'm wrong and they just want to tell me more about how I'm wrong. And what would it be if we, according to our passage here, were slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to become angry and judgmental and instead like, tell me more. I'd love to hear more. Tell me more. And what happened next? I mean, these great prompts that get people into their story, because oftentimes they're stuck in their story, by the way. We get stuck in our own stories. And something happened along the way, and we began to believe a narrative about God or ourselves or other people, and we got stuck. And oftentimes what people need is a, is a Jesus follower to come alongside of them and be compassionate and listen to them. And then here's the beauty, guys. When you become an amazing listener, and you know, someone that's exceptional at asking questions, you know what it does? After you've listened, people go, well, I'd like to hear what you think about this. Oh, okay. And you have a platform to speak words of life because you've listened to their life. And now I've got a platform, I've got an audience, someone who's asking me a question, what do you think about this? What do you think I should do? What what do you think about what's going on in my life? Uh, Would you like to hear? Yes, I'd love to hear your thoughts, okay. And then you share, instead of coming in and going, I'm right and you're wrong, I sure would love to tell you more about how you're wrong and about how I'm right. Does that make sense? And this is what James is saying to us. Let me just offer one more uh, piece to this before we move to, to verse 27. Again, speaking of like a cultural commentary, someone who's outside of a religious circle, you know, someone who's writing about religious people, um, Mark Twain. Mark Twain wrote this about religious people. And again, it's not that I necessarily agree with all this or I think it's even fair. It's just interesting to get a commentary from someone who would consider themselves openly to be non-religious or even irreligious. Twain wrote, man is the religious animal. He recognized that. He's the only religious animal. He's the only animal that loves his neighbor, great commandment, as himself, and cuts his throat if his theology isn't straight. He has made a graveyard of the globe and trying his honest best to smooth his brother's path to happiness and to heaven. Now, what, what little phrase sticks out to you from Twain's commentary on religiosity, religious people? The one that sticks out to me is a graveyard of the globe. In, in my desire to help people find happiness and heaven, I make a graveyard of relationships because I enter in with judgment and anger and frustration and I'm right and you're wrong and lots of words and not a lot of listening. And so James transitions here from this whole idea of Um, listening before you speak and and not being angry. And when you do hear from God, making sure you're putting that into practice. And he transitions here to talk about pure and genuine religion, which is an interesting phrase in verse 27, pure and genuine religion. And so he introduces the idea that, yeah, Jesus followers should have a religion, quote unquote, that they're following. And he's going to give a description of what that looks like. But let me just start here with what is religion? Have you ever thought about that? I mean we hear that word all the time but but like what is it? Well academically according to Webster's religion, just let's just start there even with a secular definition, is the faithful devotion to an acknowledged ultimate reality or deity. The faithful devotion to an acknowledged ultimate reality or deity. To say it another way, it's the way that you love or show affection towards who your God is. So in that way, I would argue that everybody is religious because whether your God is yourself or other people or Jesus or whoever it might be, you're showing that devotion by how you live. And all of us are serving someone or something and that is our quote unquote religion. And so again, at a, at a very base level, religion is the way we show faithful devotion to what or who we think is God. So what's the problem with that? It's not the faithful devotion, it's who we're faithfully devoted to. And it's maybe even more importantly in our passage, how we're showing that faithful devotion. And and here's what I would say, if if you're taking notes, the way this plays itself out is so important. And to me, it comes down to, to, to two words. The words are for and from. You say, Chris, what in the world does that have to do with this? Well, if I'm working for the approval of God, which is how most people see religion, by the way, it's a set of standards, practices that I have to employ to earn the affection or the approval of said God. If I'm, if I'm living that from, for a place of I've got to win God's affection, I've got to prove my worth to God so that he'll deem me worthy to come into heaven, so many of you have believed this or even still believe this. I hear it all the time in my seat. Well, I hope when I get to heaven that God will let me in. Oh, it, it, it breaks my heart. Because somehow in those words, when I'm listening to those words, it's I have to do something or be something for God to approve of me. And it runs completely counter to what the gospel says. The gospel tells us that Jesus did for you and for me what I could not, what I would not do for myself. And it's only by the completed work of Jesus that God accepts me into his heaven. And so when I hear those words, and I know some of you have said them, some of you might believe that right now, the whole idea of I hope I get the 51% vote. And when I get in that St. Peter will say, 51% come on into God's heaven. No, it's 100 or zero. I'm 100% saved by the grace of God or I'm not. And so when James is talking about religiosity, he's not talking about living for the approval of God, that I've got to do all these things, three prayers. I've got to do these five practices. I've got to do all this religious activity to somehow get other people to know that I'm right and religious. And more importantly, to gain the favor and the approval of God. Now, here's the thing. In context, James's audience, again, they grew up Jewish. They saw all kinds of religious leaders that wanted to be seen and heard. That entered into the room speaking words and not listening with curiosity. That wanted to be in the best places, in the seat of honor, to be in a certain position and piety and to be known and seen these certain ways and to practice all these different things so that they could be approved by God. This is what they were steeped in and James is undercutting that and saying, this is not what religion is at all. He says the proof of our, watch this, to use our definition, the proof of our faithful devotion to God will be our faithful devotion to others, the way we love other people. It'll be evidenced in our, in our ethic. And he says specifically, right, he says that the, the, our understanding of, of, of where we're coming from, like why are we doing these things, just stick with me here, why am I doing these religious activities? Whatever it might be in your life, what, why am I showing this faithful devotion? If it's for the approval of God, right? Then I can never do enough. And what I actually need is something from you. Now, everyone, everyone if I've, somehow you're thinking about lunch or you're making your grocery list, I want you to come back to me right now, okay? <laughs> this is so important. If you don't hear anything else I say, I hope you'll, you'll hear this if you're living for the approval of God, in other words, I've got to get God's approval. I've got to do these things to get God's approval, right? If it's for, to use our words, then I'm always going to need something from you. People who are living for always need something from So in other words, if I need God's approval, if I'm doing all this religious activity so I can get God's approval, then I need to get something from you. So when someone knocks at your door and says, here's a brochure I'd love to tell you about, you know, Jesus and faith or whatever. And you know, it's from a different organization. And you go, this just seems a little weird. And those folks have come to my door and I have such compassion for them. But here's the reason why I have such compassion is because I know that they're knocking on my door and telling me about Jesus or whatever it is because they have to knock on a certain number of doors in order to think they can get into heaven. They're still doing their religious activity for the approval of God and therefore they need something from me. Now here's the really amazing thing. When I'm living from the approval of God, not by my works, but by the work of Jesus, when I understand that Jesus did for me what I couldn't do for myself on the cross and through the resurrection, what we celebrated last week. Now I want something for you and not from you. Because I have everything I need from Jesus. My identity, my salvation, my entrance into God's heaven, his life within me, I don't need anything from you. So now my orientation to every relationship is I want something for you. I don't want something from you. I've already got that from Jesus. So when I'm living from a place of identity and acceptance and God's righteousness and his holiness and purity and calling and purpose and value and meaning and all of these things that we strive for and long for as people, when that is fulfilled in Jesus, then I just want something for you. I don't need anything from you. When I'm trying to get something from God, I need to get something from you. And when I'm living for God's approval, I'm just trying to cling and prove to God that I'm worthy. I gotta always consume other people. And here's the deal. So many of us, even as Christ followers, live our lives as consumers of other people, if we're honest. I want something from you. I need your approval. I need your acceptance. I need your affirmation. So I'll do these things, but it's only so that I can get this from you. And guys, part of the freedom that Jesus invites us into is to be free from needing anything from anybody because I've got it all from him. Does that make sense? So when it comes to religious, faithful devotion to God, it's from or for. And if it's for, I always need something from you. But if it's from, I know I'm, I'm, I'm operating from the acceptance, the approval, the identity of Christ. I, don't, I just want something for you. I don't need anything from you. I have everything that I need in Christ. And so the question that James begs here that I think he answers in verse 27 and 26 is, like, should Christians, should people who follow Jesus, people of the way, people like us, for those of you who are Christians in the room and watching online, should we be quote unquote religious? And I think the way he answers it is, well, not as a noun, but as a verb, yes. In your faithful devotion to God, yes. And then he answers, Well, if you're going to be quote-unquote religious in your actions, in your faithful devotion, then what should that look like for someone who follows Jesus? What would it look like for someone to be quote-unquote religious, to be faithfully devoted to God in in every area of their life, but not for God's approval, but from God's approval? What would that look like? Look at verse 27. He says, pure and genuine religion... In the sight of God the Father means this. Now, every, all of us should be on the edge of our seats listening. So yeah, if we're going to be religious, quote unquote, faithfully devoted to God, what would that actually look like in a way that God himself approves us of? He says, well, it's first caring for orphans and widows in their distress. So compassion for others, particularly the least and the lost and the last among us to be, again, not judgmental, but compassionate towards people, particularly a group of people, why does he call out orphans and widows? There's all kinds of hurting people in the world. Why does he call those two groups of people out in the first century? Because during the first century, if you were an orphan, if you were a widow, right or wrong, you were the lowest in society and there was nothing that you could do to better your place in culture and society. You didn't have a right to vote. Many of them didn't have a right to work. You didn't have anybody to look after you. You didn't have any kind of inheritance. There was no government assistance. Nobody was going to come for you and look out for you. And James says, hey, you want to be faithfully devoted to God and be quote unquote religious? Pure and genuine religious is looking after the lowest of the low. And this is what's so fascinating, watch this. Look after a group of people that can give you nothing, that you can't get anything from, because you don't need it. You've already got it from Jesus. Now you just want something for them. And so go care for people who can't care for themselves. And I wonder in our lives who that would be. Who are the people that, hey, you know, it's not about I'm going to scratch your back, but you scratch my back too. Quid pro quo religiosity. I'm going to care for you and serve you, but you, you're going to care for me and serve me, right? You're going to look after me. No. Who are the people in your life who, who physically can't do anything to repay you? Who, who, who have nothing to offer you and you show up not as a taker from them because you need something from them, but as a giver? And by the way, those of us who are Christ followers, our posture in entering into the world in every relationship is a giver, not a taker. Because we don't need anything from other people if we have it in Jesus. And so James says the the first key to, to pure and genuine religion, devotion to God is looking after the least and the lost and the last among us. But then he says this, this is really curious. The last thing he says is, and refuse to let the world corrupt you. Huh. Well, there's probably a million things we could talk about in the ways that our, our hearts can be corrupted and polluted by the story of the world. But here's what I want to show you today, and we'll finish right here. In, in the, the Greek that this was written in by James, it was written, there are two forms of Greek in the first century. There's classical Greek and koine Greek. And Koine Greek was a common kitchen language Greek. and This is really interesting because what do you think the New Testament was written in? It was written in Koine Greek. It was written in common everyday vernacular so that everyday people, not academics or the high places of society would only understand God's word. It was written in everyday kitchen language so that everyday people just like us could know Jesus. And I think that's really neat. And in that language here in verse 27, James chapter one, the last verse in the chapter, James says, here's what pure and genuine religion is. It means that you look after orphans and widows in their distress and you refuse to let the world corrupt you. But here's what's interesting. In the Koine Greek, there is no and in that verse. It was added later on by translators who were transliterating from Koine Greek to English, and that sentence wouldn't make sense without a conjunction. So they put a conjunction in there, and, but I wanna read it to you without the word, because that's how it was originally written. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress, refusing to let the world corrupt you. Do you hear that? It's actually not two things that make up pure and genuine religion, it's one. That somehow, when I enter into relationships, when I enter into the world as a giver and not a taker, it keeps my heart from being corrupted by the story of this world. And what is the story of this world, dear friends? The story of this world is you are a consumer. So eat, drink, and be merry. Get everything you can from everyone and everything and be a consumer and then die. And the story of Jesus is you have everything you need in Jesus. And because all of your needs are met perfectly in Jesus, now you can enter into the world as a Giver and not a taker. And somehow, somehow, when our hearts individually, familially, as a church, when our hearts are warmed to the least and the last and the lost among us, somehow it protects our heart from the wicked narrative of the world. That you're only here as a taker. And here's the deal everybody watch this you're not. God has something so much more for you. God doesn't want anything from you. God wants something for you. So what is it, bottom line, when it comes to pure and genuine religion, when it comes to your religion, your faithful devotion to God, are you operating for, to try to get something from God, from other people? Are you living from? from the approval of God, which moves towards a posture of giving and not taking. To Christ be the glory today. Let's pray together. Hear the passage one more time. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, Jesus, who sets you free, and if you do what it says, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress, refusing to let the world corrupt you. God, would you give us the wisdom to know what you're speaking to us today from your word? And would you give us the courage and the faith to leave this place and live it out. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.